Lessons from the lives of others. Uh, God wants us to learn lessons from the lives of others. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, uh, experience is the best teacher. But then he said, but a fool will learn from no other. Uh, this leads us to conclude that the, the experience of others is also a good teacher. Um, rather than repeat history, uh, learn from what others learned. Experience can be a hard teacher. Uh, the test comes first, and the lesson comes afterward. So, recall in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, Paul says, Now, all these things happened to them for examples, and they were written for our admonition. So, uh, this summer we're taking a six-lesson tour of six Old Testament characters to learn lessons from their lives. Uh, Lesser-known characters, uh, Balaam, Esther, Gideon, Hannah, Jeroboam I, Samson. But today it's Balaam, the son of Beor, from Peor, from the land of Mesopotamia. Now we're going to uh, realize that Balaam is well-documented uh, from five books of the Old Testament, three books of the New Testament, archaeological evidence, and Numbers chapter 22 to 25 this morning, and we're going to examine three different aspects of the man and his mission, uh, the way of Balaam, the error of Balaam, and the doctrine of Balaam. <clears throat> Here's the background. Uh, in 1401 BC, the Israelites have uh, completed their wandering in the wilderness, and uh, they're wanting to go, well, Aaron died here at Mount Hor, but they're wanting to go right straight up here along the King's Highway to go up to the north end of the Dead Sea and cross over into Jericho. This is what they want to do. But the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, uh, said, no, you can't go through here. And the Moabites said, you can't go through here either. So they had to go down here all the way down the Midianites are down here, most of them. And so they come up around the east side. There's the brazen serpent up around the edge of the Moabites on the east side. And they come up into the land of the Amorites. Now, the Ammonites, the descendants of Lot's youngest daughter, were kicked out by the Amorites. But all of a sudden, they run into King Sikon. And King Sikon goes into battle with them. And God tells Israel to wipe them out completely. So they kill every man, woman, and child and take the plunder. And then they move on up a little further and they run into Og, king of Bashan, up in the land of cattle and grass. And God says, take them out as well. So they killed all the men, women, and children and took the plunder and left. Now, uh, Og was... Uh, what happened here? Oh, he got, the, the slide got annihilated too, along with the battle. Uh, all right, there we go. <laughs> this was the land of the giants. These men were of huge stature. Um, Og had an iron bed that was 13 foot by 6 foot. And so you can see that people were feared, uh, fearful of the Amorites. Uh, and so that's kind of the background there. 
of what's happening. They're trying to get into the promised land. And so we come to uh, Numbers chapter 22. If you want to turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22, that's where we'll begin. This covers chapters 22, 23, 24, and part of 25. I suppose we could just read it and sit down, but we're going to kind of go through and make a few comments. Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. I think that was a reference to the defeat of Og of Bashan in his land of grass and cattle. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time. Verse 5. Then he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him saying, Look! A people has come from Egypt, about three to five million of them probably. See, they cover the face of the earth, and they're settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed. And he whom you curse is cursed. Verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Now, Balaam was a diviner, a soothsayer, a seer of the gods. For a fee, he would call upon the god of your choice. He knew them all. And call down curses on your enemies. And Balaam lived over in Mesopotamia, near the Euphrates River. and was the most famous of all prophets, of all seers. In fact, in 1967, archaeologists found references to Balaam, the son of Beor, uh, from the ruins of Balaam's hometown, Pethor. Now, as you recall, there's a, um, an admonition in Leviticus concerning divination. It says, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. It was a means of communicating with the spirits, the divine realm, and it's closely related to animal sacrifices. Um, diviners would exa examine the entrails of the sacrifice, and they'd look at the liver, and by looking at the liver, they could tell whether the gods had accepted the sacrifice. And so, in short, uh, the diviners would ostensibly tell the future, call down curses, call down blessings, whatever you needed, examine the sacrifices, whatever you needed, for the appropriate diviner's fee, of course. They had to get paid. So, this brings us to the way of Balaam. It's one of the marks of false teachers. In the Old Testament, it says, beware of false prophets. In the New Testament, it says, beware of 
false teachers. And so 2 Peter 2.15 says, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Uh, As we read in Micah, in chapter 3, God rebukes the leaders of Israel because her priests teach for pay. Her prophets practice divination for money. And they still think that no disaster or harm will come upon them. And so the way of Balaam is preaching the word of God for profit. It's commercializing spiritual gift. It's making market for monetary gain. And so as you look around today, we have the prosperity theology, the prophets of profit, those who holler for dollar. <laughs> if you've seen it, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, they get rich from the poor, and they preach and peddle for profit. You know, sometimes you just got to crowd, crowdfund your private jet. You see, Jesus will only help you if you give me money. And so think of this, soliciting God so that he will bless you is like marrying someone for their money, you know, ingratiating yourself in order to get benefit. Let me give you an example from Brazil. While we were down there, in July of 2014, seven years ago, Adir Macedo, the founder and leader of the Neo-Pentecostal Universal Church of the Kingdom of God completed construction of a $300 million replica of Solomon's Temple in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Now, he got his start as a civil servant in the Brazilian lottery. And now he's a billionaire bishop. And he owns the third largest television network in Brazil. And his prosperity is used to justify his lifestyle. Here's what he says. If I preach prosperity and my clothes are ragged, no one will follow me. (laughs) He's seeking disciples after himself, isn't he? Well, Solomon's real temple is about 42 foot tall, just to give you an idea. This one stands 180 feet tall. That's 18 stories. As you can see, the the high-rises are smaller than this temple. Uh, It takes up an entire city block. It's twice the height of the, the, the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro. If you've ever been there or seen pictures, this thing is twice as high as that. Uh, they imported $8 million worth of stone from Jerusalem, from Israel, to cover the pillars. Uh, outside, there's a garden of olive trees, like the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, there's flags of several companies, countries. Uh, there's a parking lot that holds 50 buses and 1,000 vehicles and a helicopter pad. (laughs) You see, in Brazil, the wealthy get around by helicopter. The city's so big that they fly from point to point. And of course, he needed to have one. Uh, Inside, there's gold-stained windows, gold-leaf-plated Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The sanctuary seats 10,000 people. It's lined with pews imported from Spain. It has 36 Sunday school rooms for 1,300 children radio and television studios, a museum, and 84 apartments for the pastors and bishops of the church. This has a worldwide following of close to 12 million people worldwide. 
And now for the deacons, for the tithes and offerings, there's a conveyor belt system leading straight into the counting room. <laughs> Serious. <laughs> Perhaps this applies. Jesus said when he was in, he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. <laughs> so you see, in reality, the word of faith movement, the prosperity theology works. But only for those preaching it, right? So beware of false teachers. Healing and prosperity, plant a seed to meet your need, signs and wonder movements. This is a huge problem worldwide and it, and it continues to grow. Um, false teachers are not limited to uh, preaching for profit. Um, they also um, have been able to dupe confuse uh, Christians. There's all kinds of spiritual con artists out there. They prey upon and pray over <laughs> those who are ignorant of what the Word of God teaches. And so doctrinal damage control is a big part of the New Testament. As you read the New Testament, uh, the Scripture contains warning after warning of false teachers and their teachings that pervert the Gospel, pervert the Scriptures. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesian elders, he says, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. <laughs> Remember what Ed here said? They won't follow me unless I look, I have prosperity. Drawing away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn you day and night. So we might ask ourselves, why are Christians so easily drawn into these false teachings? Well, here's the deal. Know your enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world because it's so attractive, but it's temporal and not eternal. The flesh because it's so weak. It's easier to be spoon-fed scriptures rather than to study it for yourself. Isn't that true? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, there's a preference, I think, uh, for subjective and experiential spirituality rather than diligent studying and obeying the Word of God. The world, the flesh, your third enemy is the devil because he's so strong and he's very subtle and his seductive power draws us away from God's Word. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So the prevention of false teaching, the uh, correction of false practices, Bible study, read it and do it. Discipleship, a consistent study and living out of the scriptures. Uh, like the Bereans, they receive the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. All right, so verse 8. Balaam says in verse 8, Lodge here tonight, and I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. Notice he says, Lodge here tonight. That is consistent with the occult practices of seeking the spirits after dark. Nothing good happens after dark. Well, what is it, 10 or 11 o'clock at night, Bob? Something like that. Nothing good can happen after 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Verse 9. Then Balaam came and said, Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? 
So, verse 10, Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me saying, look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Balak again sent princes, more numerous and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly. He offers him more reward. And I will do whatever you say to me. The Eastern way of negotiation. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me. Verse 18, then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. <laughs> now, notice that um, Balaam is still thinking about a house full of silver and gold perhaps hoping that God will change his mind if he asks him a second time. So here's a lesson for us. If we know for certain the, the, how God feels about something, uh, maybe it's forbidden, there's no need to ask a second time if we can do it. It's kind of like praying to God to, to see if he's okay with you robbing a bank. You know, It's just like, it makes no sense. If he's already said no, that's the end of the discussion. So here's Balaam's sin. He asked God if he should curse Israel, and he was told absolutely not, because Israel's blessed. He asked, and he got an answer. So far, so good. But to keep on inquiring to God if he should curse Israel was showing that he was self-seeking and looking for his own self-benefit. Verse 20 interesting section here. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. We ask ourselves, why did God permit Balaam to go? Did God intend to curse Israel? Or did God intend to bless Israel in spite of it all? But then, why was God's anger aroused? Well, here's the deal. God allowed Balaam to go but Balaam did not carry divine approval with him. In verse 12, 
Notice the directive will of the Lord to Balaam was, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they're blessed. But in verse 20, we see the permissive will of God. He says, rise and go with them. The prophet was now free to go in spite of what God had told him, in spite of having the true mind of God about it. This permission was a test. Unfortunately, Balaam chose the path of self-will and self-advantage. So here's a lesson. Sometimes God lets us have our way, and he punishes us for it. Sometimes God punishes us by allowing us to have our own way. Balaam, the donkey, and the angel. Verse 23. This is Rembrandt's version of it. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. And the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards, with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Verse 26, And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Verse 28. It's really interesting. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you, that you have struck me these three times? Balaam, not even being surprised that the donkey spoke, said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And Balaam said, no. Well, aside from the serpent in the Garden of Eden, this is the only instance in Scripture where an animal is described as speaking. Now, the situation is absurdly ironic. And Balaam, of course, is clueless. Here's the deal. The donkey's misbehaving. The donkey's talking. Balaam's talking back like Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> Furthermore, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord... But Balaam, the diviner prophet, the seer of the gods, sees nothing. And as the Jewish commentators say, he was trying to discern the mind of God, but he couldn't even discern the mind of a donkey. <laughs> Verse 31. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you, 
because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have also killed you by now and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now therefore, if it pleases you, I will turn back. He still wanted to go, but if it pleases you, I'll go back, right? He's still hedging his bets. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Verse 36. Now when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is in the border at the Arnon, the boundary of the territory, the river there. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not earnestly send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, Look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. So Balaam went with Balak. They came to Kirjath-Hazeth. Then Balak, Balak offered oxen and sheep. And he sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him, perhaps to look at their liver. I don't know. <laughs> Verse 41. So it was the next day that Balaam brought him to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. Then Balaam said to Balak, now the, the ceremony, the pomp and circumstance starts, right? Build seven altars for me here, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height. And God met Balaam and said to him, I have prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. I told him what to say. So he returned to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. So, in the following verses, Balaam fails to curse Israel three times from high places. The high places of Baal, at the top of Pisgah, and the top of Peor. Typically, that's where he stood to, bless, to uh, curse or bless. But rather than cursing Israel... He blessed them bountifully. <clears throat> this brings us to the error of Balaam. Um, Jude 11 says, They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. And so King Balak is going to hire, he has hired Balaam to try to curse Israel. Now if you think back in Genesis, when God spoke to Abraham, he said, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him or curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he made the same promise to Isaac and Jacob. And so I think, well, 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is primarily messianic, isn't it? Referring to the coming Messiah, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also a practical aspect of this thing. Um, have the Jewish people blessed all the families of the earth? Well, they compose two-tenths of one percent of the population. But they represent 22% of the Nobel laureates, Nobel Prize laureates. We have been blessed by the descendants of Jacob in a very practical way, in many ways. You see, it's impossible for God to lie. Something like this. In all the families of the earth, you'll be blessed. It has broader meaning than just the messianic aspect of it. God's promises are immutable. And so he makes a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 17, he says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. Took three different wives, but he made a lot of nations, right? And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you're a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I'll be their God. Then to Isaac he makes the promise, Dwell in this land and I'll be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Then to Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Chapter 28 of Genesis. And behold, the Lord God stood above and said, I am the Lord God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you and your seed shall all nations, all families of the earth be blessed. All right. Unfortunately, we have something called replacement theology. It's called fulfillment theology. It's called supersessionism. It says that the universal Christian church has replaced the ancient nation of Israel. It says individual Christians have replaced the Jewish people. It holds that Israel has no plans in God's future. God's plans for the future does not include Israel, despite, as we just read, his everlasting promises. And this is not the only place. Now I'm going to say something that's really, I'm going to read you something you're not going to like it, probably. But I'm going to read it anyway. Because perhaps this replacement theology that was the strongest incentive for a generation to persecute the Jews came from the Protestant German reformer Martin Luther. Luther originally hoped that the Jewish people would see his way, would accept his form of faith even initially praising their contribution to Christianity, New Testament church, right? However, 
when he did not succeed in converting the Jews, his attitude changed dramatically. And so in 1542, he wrote a little work called Concerning the Jews and Their Lies. And here's what he said. Hang on to your seat. All the blood kindred of Christ burn in hell, and they are rightly served. Even according to their own words, they spoke to Pilate. He takes that a little far, doesn't he? Verily, a hopeless, wicked, venomous, and devilish thing is the existence of these Jews, who for 1,400 years have been, and still are, our pest, torment, and misfortune. They are just devils and nothing more. Firstly, their synagogues should be set on fire. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach any more. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. Sixthly, they ought to be stopped from usury. Seventhly, let the young and strong Jews and Jewesses be given the flail, the axe, the hoe, the spade, the distaff, and spindle, and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. We ought to drive the rascally, lazy bones out of our system. Therefore, away with them. To sum up, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one, so that you and we may be all free of this unsufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. Now, in a sermon shortly before his death, he called for the immediate expulsion of all the Jews from Germany. This would be implemented in a later period under the greatest persecution of the Jewish people ever witnessed to this date, the Nazi Holocaust under Adolf Hitler. Now, fortunately, the Lutheran churches of today have renounced this little spasm of Luther's. Right? Nevertheless, the consequences remain. The consequences of attacking the descendants of Jacob is defeat. And conversely, the nations who bless Israel will be blessed. Now, according to the Ministry of Defense in Israel, since its establishment in 1948, the state of Israel has fought seven recognized wars. The record is 7-0, undefeated. Take it for what it's worth. It's worth quite a bit. It's worth quite a bit, isn't it? Think about it. All right, Numbers chapter 23. We're going to look at one of his pronouncements from the high places of Baal. Numbers 23. And he took up his oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. Verse 8. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Second prophecy, verse 13. Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. 
you shall see only the outer part of them and shall not see them all. Curse them for me from there. So he brought him to the field of Zophim to the top of Pisgah and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Third prophecy, verse 27. Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, and I'll take you to another place. Perhaps it please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balaam took, Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, and of course, he didn't curse him, he blessed him. We go into chapter 24, you see the same thing happening. Blessed is he who blesses you, cursed is he who curses you. Verse 12 of chapter 24, he finally gives up. Verse 14, he says, And now indeed I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Hmm. And he gets around to cursing somebody finally. Hmm. He blesses Israel bountifully. He says, A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. They're going to destroy Moab. Edom's going to be a possession. Amalek's going to perish. The Canaanites are going to be burned, and Asher's going to carry them away. In verse 25, So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. But that's not the end of the story. The doctrine of Balaam, first verse, five verses of chapter 25, Israel remained in the Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you will kill his men who are joined to Baal of Peor. So there's two lessons for us. We learn that Balaam counseled the Moabites to corrupt the people who could not be cursed by tempting them to marry the women of Moab, to defile and abandon godly separation in exchange for worldly conformity. James says, do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Romans 12 says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The other lesson is this. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? And so this unequal yoke is talking about can be marriage, it can be partnership. And by the way, missionary dating with the lost is not a formula for success. It seldom works. Perhaps that might be the most important thing I'm saying to some of you. How does this end? The death of Balaam. It didn't end well for Balaam. When Joshua led the Israelites into battle against the Midianites, Balaam was there. 
and he's killed with the sword along with the five kings of the Midianites. The way of Balaam, making merchandise a spiritual gift. There of Balaam, thinking that Israel can be cursed. The doctrine of Balaam, conformity with the world. May none of these ever be so. Let's pray. Lord, grant us the knowledge of your word and the wisdom to obey it. Uh, Grant us transformation to the good and acceptable and perfect will of God by renewing our minds and not by confirmation to the world. Uh, Bless Israel. And may many believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, in whose name we pray. Amen.